Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 125 with my friend Jeremy Williams. This was a long time coming. This was a guy I had to track down to finally get on the show. And what... What an adventure that was. First of all, this episode is going to be in two parts. The interview is what you're about to listen to. And then I'm going to release a little bonus episode later in the week with just the music part. Because we ended up just kind of talking about music and guitars for an hour and a half before we even started the interview. So (laughs) that's Jeremy could teach a guitar class. In fact, I think I told him, go make a YouTube channel and just do that because uh he's great at it you'll hear that later in the in the bonus episode this week but this is just the interview so i will uh i'll I'll talk about it afterwards i I just want to let you guys get into it he's a fascinating person he's got a lot going on without further ado this is my friend jeremy you and i have lots in common my request is sent would you like to be my friend do you want to talk about you? Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Can I can I make you uncomfortable and shift the subject? Sure. Um, no, it's funny because there's so much that you intertwined in there, and I'm like logging these things like. Oh, but wait, the reality is, you can't really talk about yourself without talking about the fish tank you live in. Yeah. You know what I mean. Well. So I want to get some basics out of the way that I don't know. And, and you alluded to a few things that I'm like, oh, okay. So I know you have an older brother. Mm-hmm. Is that your only sibling? No, I got two younger sisters too. Oh, I did know that. Yeah. yeah. Now that, now that yeah. you mentioned it. Where were you born? I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay. Yep. Did you grow up there? I, like... I lived there all the way to halfway through seventh grade. So, half, okay. you know. Uh, roughly half of my formative years were in Milwaukee and okay in Clarkston. What well, uh, what did mom and dad do when you're born? Um, my dad, when I was born, I'm not sure what he's do. I mean, my dad's always been in and around entrepreneurship or management level business. Okay. So as a kid, he had the last ever fresh baked famous famous cookie store. He had a grocery <laughs> store. He had a like a HVAC business. He didn't do HVAC, but yeah. he, like, they would do big buildings, like the Pettit Center, like the place where the Winter Olympics, they go to Milwaukee to get ready for the Winter Olympics. He put in the original heating and cooling system for that building nice. and stuff like that. So he was always doing that. And then when he got here, well, when I was younger, he, he tried to get into politics in Milwaukee. Then he got into it kind of here. He worked for L. Brooks Patterson, and that's a whole... That was not a comfortable thing, but, um, yeah. And then my mom was always, she, she worked, she followed, basically followed in my grandfather's footsteps. So her dad was a big time engineer GM Okay. and my mom went in more on the mathematical side. She was like statistician and stuff like that. She did a few different jobs at, um, GM, but basically kind of followed her. That's how we ended up in Michigan anyway, because, they had all worked for AC Delco, which was GM in yeah, Milwaukee. Yeah. And then it was like, if you want to start, if you want to go higher than what you could at that, in that little environment, you it meant you were going to be in Flint or, you know, Southeast Michigan somewhere. Did So did that amount, 
I mean, given what you, you said, what your dad was doing in Milwaukee and your mom's like educational track and everything, did that amount to a reasonably comfortable home then? Like as far as economically and I would say, yeah, I mean, I mean, also four kids is expensive. As shit. Four, that, you know, four kids is expensive. I, you know, I'm like, I think every like middle class family has like their ups and downs yeah, in yeah, the yeah. middle class genre. But we, I mean, it's not like I ever wanted for something. You yeah. know what I mean? And I was able to do things that were relatively expensive, like play instruments and all that kind of stuff. But also, from an early age, we were encouraged to be able to go make a mean, make a way for yourself too. Yeah. So. Yeah, another was like handed to you. It was always like caddying and cutting grass and yeah. blah blah blah. And you know, if it if it was too expensive, somebody would. You know, if they, you know, there's somebody in the family who would like meet you, like, oh man, I seen you working. You know, let's, you, how much money do you have? You needed a hundred bucks. You got sixty. Come on, let's go get it. Like they would match yeah, yeah. to try and encourage you to do stuff like that. I would say, you know, economically comfortable. What was, because uh, I, I mean, were you in like Milwaukee proper? I was in Glendale, northern suburb of okay. Milwaukee. And it was the great American lie because it was awesome. So <laughs> there was Jewish kids, white kids, black kids. There was affluent kids of all races. There was kids that had less money. And we it wasn't it was like, like a real melting pot. Yes. Okay. You had Indian kids, Mexican kids, Puerto Rican. You had everything. You had kids straight off the boat from, from Europe, like yeah. Russian kids and all. It was like amazing. And then I moved to Clarkston. <laughs> and you say you did that in middle seventh grade? Yeah. So and this is like the middle of junior high, which theoretically is like the worst three yes. years of most people's lives. Yeah. I remember the first day to... going to Sashball High School to talk to the counselor. We were getting ready to start, and like we were still like a week or two from starting, but it was like February or something, like just after, not too long after the Christmas, the winter break yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And then I think it was like going in, there's like another winter break that we had or some midwinter break. And I think we were like starting right after that. But we went to school and at Sashabaugh Middle School, the counselor's office was like at the end of a hallway. Right. And we just so happened to be coming in as like switch over and classes was happening. Oh, so we walked in and every field head of in the people. hallway yeah. turned looking at us. That's how how that's the lack of diversity Clarkson had. Yeah. Like, and it wasn't like angry looks. It was like, whoa, we've never, this has never happened. We've never yeah. had a black kid in our, and there were, you know, I, we weren't the first, but it was just still but such like, a, it's literally countable. Yeah. Like I can tell you that there was like four or five of us. When yeah, we graduated. Went, yeah. 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 Like I, <laughs> and now it's different. It's a little bit more. They might have a full percentage point or something, but, um, you know, it was totally different, and that I'd never. You're not the center of attention in Milwaukee. Like nobody yeah. really was the center of it. Everybody was, like it seemed like everybody was friends, or whatever differences you had, it was something you could get over. You know, was there a moment before you came here that you like had, you know, like a young kid race realization or something in Milwaukee? Not really. Well, 
we all watched Roots in the sixth grade or whatever, and that was the first time we were like, man, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, what was that shit about? <laughs> like, looking at your white friend like, God damn. How come no one told us? <laughs> yeah. But also, you had such a mixture. So in, in Milwaukee, European Americans are far less likely to give up their ethnicity. In Michigan, you had Henry Ford forcing European Americans to give up their ethnicity. So it's a totally different thing. You got to remember, whiteness is a contrived thing. You're saying like embracing your European culture, and and like whether it be German or in Finnish Milwaukee, or whatever. yes, yeah. there's okay. they still have their Jewish traditions, their German traditions, their Polish traditions, yeah. and there might even be a grandmother who barely, even though she might have been born here speaks better of german than whatever yeah. you know what i'm saying like the italians were really italian if you will like they and they celebrated their even their italian american traditions that's very important they still do to this day so you had your first dose of like real difference when you came here yes and it was a sit down with my parents saying, hey, I know this is going to suck. You can't be fighting everyone. You have to teach. You know what I mean? Because we were taught somebody disrespects you, then whatever. You know what I mean? And, you know, it was like a conclusion, like, what are you going to do? Fight everyone because they're making mistakes. You have to remember they aren't exposed. Yeah. This is a real yeah. cultural issue. And Not everyone is hateful. Some are just ignorant. That, so that's the fucked up thing, right? Because I and we talked about this a little when you first got here. Because there's so many people that, uh, and I talked about it on the show before, but like, don't leave this town, right? Mm-hmm. And when you don't venture outside your bubble, and all you know is your bubble, then like, when you're growing up, it's unfamiliar. And then that unfamiliar becomes uncomfortable, and then that uncomfortable you can run from it or you fight. Yeah, it and it or, can. That's that's where you get like a yeah. lot of the racism. But and shit coming in, see. I had it. I had the full on West Side and South Side of Chicago experience because my yeah. my father's family is from Chicago, and my grandparents. I didn't even think of it as the hood. They lived on West West End, which is the hood hood. <laughs> And maybe that's evolved a little bit. But when I was little, that was like the coolest place to be in the summer. Yeah. And I didn't even really, like on the blo- like on that block, we didn't, like it was kids playing. You were protected by the older people there. There was old people sitting on the porch. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like a, to me, it was a great vibe. And I, when I learned about other places of Chicago, it seemed foreign. When I learned about the north side and, all this other in the West Side suburbs that seemed foreign to me, yeah. but coming to Clarkston, I had those type of experience. I had extensive experience in Beaumont, Texas, and Houston Tech. I had seen because in our in, in our family, you might get sent for a couple of weeks to stay with your great aunt. You know what I'm saying? Like it was very important to expose you to the the places you come from. That's and understand nice. your story and all that kind of stuff. So coming to Clarkston, it wasn't just the Milwaukee experience. I had a all whole the other stuff, yeah. And it, it was 
you know, it's the 80s that I came out of, so we were a lot more we're free-ranged kids, if you will. Like stuff. <laughs> Don't that, I know it? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't <laughs> let my kid do... I don't have a child, but if I had a child, I would not <laughs> let them do all this. Like, we would just drive four towns over because there was a a five and dime that sold, like, fryer crackers and stuff like that. Like, we would just, you know... Like, I got hit by a bus when I was a kid. (laughs) Literally. I got hit by a bus going to Bayshore Mall in Milwaukee, but I wasn't supposed to be there, right? I got permission to go to basically my cousin Lakin's house. Instead, you went to the mall. No, I went to Lakin's house, and it was like, hey, what are we going to do? Let's ride our bikes to the mall. And I'm riding on Silver Spring Road, and this bus like just driving fast coming off the freeway that there was a freeway intersection there and he clips the side of me i flip over busted out the windows bent up my rim and instead of staying for an ambulance i was like dude we got to get home i'm gonna get in so much trouble that's crazy (laughs) so and that was a life lesson in and of itself because afterwards like i didn't see the accident Lakin did, and he was like, like "Bro, you you got hit by a bus, a bus, bus, like like, and you got up and rode your bike home. That's like, and it, I imagine and part of that shock. <laughs> there was shock, but then you you later on in life that might give you some false bravado and confidence, yeah, thinking that you're a little bit indestructible. And because I've had other incidents like that, yeah, car accidents where other people got injured and I walked away, and I think it's more." good fortune than anything now like but i used to test the limits of that like oh man i'm unbreakable <laughs> well I, i'm curious about that too because so like one of the reasons i was super pumped to talk to you in general is because you're open about a lot of shit <laughs> you're mm. combative about a lot of shit sometimes mm-hmm. too or at least you formerly were i haven't seen that as much from you uh, yeah, in the last couple to, of years yeah i used to be a, a, a verbal pugilist <laughs> but well you but you talked a lot about like mental health and stuff and that's always something obviously i'm going into that field mm-hmm. and i like with men in general that's there's a huge stigma there uh and then culturally that could change african-american into, yeah, men so is even like literally just two years ago we started getting into <laughs> yeah, like and i i'm wondering like reflecting back that transition here to clarkston like what what were you doing? What coping mechanisms did you come up with? Like to originally was playing that. football. Cause I could be violent. Like, and I didn't want any parts to play offense. No, I, I just wanted to play linebacker and hit people as hard as I could. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because there was a feeling that it didn't matter what I said. Cause people don't really like to listen. Or they'll just be so stuck in their ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. I still had a feeling of second classness of being less than, being whatever. And on a foot on the football field, I could be as scary, mean, and violent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which... And it was, like, technically appropriate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I wasn't really... I didn't really become a person interested in violence or violent adjacent or a violent person but i made you hold on to that to some degree yeah like violence came when things happened to me from other people that shouldn't so i pledged a fraternity 
and it was a violent process. It's a little bit different joining a black fraternity than like white fraternities. It's like drinking games and cool shit. Like my friend John was joining a fraternity at the same time, and he was like, "We had this game where a guy could just see you on campus and go bang, and you had to pretend you were dead." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> We had this thing where a dude pulled out a gun at set, like, because shit was getting too violent. Like, it, like you know, people are getting punched in the face, and you're volunteering for this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was get things were happening to me by people I knew if it was a natural fight. Did any- they would run or it wouldn't have been that way. But I'm standing there so a little guy gets to tee off on me or talk to me any kind of way. And I got really hurt during my process. I had a broken tailbone, disjunct vertebrae. Jesus. I had stomach issues. And I, and I just kept trying to plow through. One night, like it was hard to walk. And one night I slipped on ice, hit my head, woke up in a bedroom you know, the house we were going to, we were walking in, and I hear these little dudes talking shit. Oh, he's all right. Ain't nothing wrong with him. Blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to get up and, like, clear the house. And what happened was you when you cross and become a full member of the fraternity, you're just supposed to let that go. And I couldn't let that go. I couldn't let any of it go. And that was the spot, like, that created a downward spiral in my life that affected a whole lot of other things. Were those voices representative of like other voices you'd heard growing up? Like, was that just like, no, it was heartbreak snowballing. So my organization is alpha Phi alpha fraternity incorporated. And I knew about this since I was a kid. And what I saw growing up was men trying to make a difference. Community service. They were joining in other African American fraternity and sorority events uplifting the community my dad had this whole filing cabinet of all this shit they were doing for the city of milwaukee and blah and so it's like role models yeah and then i found out it was wannabe gangsters or lame dudes who weren't shit before they joined the you know what i mean it was all kinds something you think it turned into or is that yeah i think i think nationwide a lot of organizations went that route yeah and so Our organization has this cool cultural thing where we step. There's two versions of step. There's like step show, and it's kind of like dance. And you do this cool stuff, chanting and blah, 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 and it instills a lot of pride and unity, blah, blah, blah. And then there's strolling where you're in the party, and there's like these different circles. Each circle is is one org, and they're doing specific steps that represent their organization and that goes all the way back to african traditions yeah right but i was so angry at what had become that i was like i'm not i won't step you're not going to see me you won't even see me smile if we're not doing something for community service or to build revenue and and build up our people or whatever to build a better way don't come to me and there was a lot more partying and stepping than there was so I, that grew resentment and I started to get resentment towards like the people that I actually had love for too, my, my line brothers and stuff like that. Yeah. Because they were like, you need to chill. Everything isn't a fight, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I just kept looking at us like, 
We're failures. We could be generating money. We could be making change. We could be demanding justice. We could be doing all kind of stuff that we're supposed to do. Martin Luther King was in our fraternity, bro. Thurgood Marshall was in our fraternity. You know, like some of the greatest minds to ever come out of our culture were part of our fraternity. And we didn't live up to that. And that was problematic to me. How much of that do you think is reflected? Like just based on the little that you've talked about your dad and your, and your mom, like, and your family in general, how much of that do you think, as far as your thought process was like indicative of the values you were instilled with? Well, every versus... Christmas we were always doing community service. So, I was yeah, dressing like, up like Santa huge. Claus every, <laughs> every fall, every, every, we were always doing something for the community. And even though we lived in Clarkston, my parents were on the board of directors for Creative Dance, uh, for Creative Expressions Dance Studio in Flint, Michigan, and we were always in Flint doing something or yeah. always raising money for the dance studio because all the kids couldn't afford their shoes or their costumes for recitals, but nobody ever went without that place. But I'm saying that's so. It sounds group. like you grew up with great. I mean, better values than I had in, the, in that respect, and I wonder. If, like, you thought that you were going to get into this organization where those values were going to be matched by other people, and they, I, they weren't. I, well, I also thought my val- the values that I was taught was the norm. Yeah. And it wasn't. Well, <laughs> I mean, the know, way you describe it now, like, it still is. <laughs> like, well, and the fact of the matter is some people are, sometimes you're just trying to get by. You're just trying to, sometimes you come from a family that, yeah, you have the heart for that. Yeah. But you're not in the position to be able to do it. Like I, not only did I go to Clarkson, but for 10 years after that, I came back every February to teach about my culture. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I just saw. Where'd you do that? You did that at the high school? I lived at, I I went to Oakland University and then lived in Pontiac. And I, every year I would go back. Oh, okay. To, you know, and, um, I just saw. Um, Jeannie Hunt, Miss yeah. Miss Lamoro. She was on the show. <laughs> well, she told me she was like, you know, there wouldn't have been that Black Lives Rally march, blah blah, if it wasn't apparently. And I didn't know this. My parents were always calling the school like, you better be doing this. You need to be doing that. Blah blah blah. Like my parents were always up there making sure proper re- representation. There was a a guy in middle school, my one of my brother's history teachers, he dropped an in bomb casually. My mom and he was never <laughs> seen that was his last year. Fuck yeah. They for my mom basically got him forced into early retirement. That's fucked up. You know. But it so there's stuff that went on behind the scenes or behind the things that, that, that were unbeknownst to me. And that made me think what regular was was different than what regular is you know what i mean i've been called a social justice warrior i've been called this that and a third but no i you i was you just don't let someone else suffer like even when i was i was homo ignorant in high school but i still was getting into fights or checking people for saying ignorant stuff or hateful stuff about you know what I mean? I have friends that came out of Clarkson's the biggest clicky place ever, and I have friends from every click because I identified with not being on top. I identified with not 
despite the fact that my parents were fi- were fine financially, my grandparents even better, blah 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 blah. I never felt privileged. But do you, I wonder where the the way you're talking about all this is it, it almost sounds like I have to be the hero for these people because who else is going to be the hero? And I'm wondering like where that comes from. Well, my both of my grandfathers are very active in the struggle. My grandmother's too. So I always heard, I always got to hear cool heroic stories about somebody in my family. So my grandfather was a member of the Deacons of Defense and Justice. He went to World War II as a 16-year-old, got kicked back, went back, went back as a 17-year-old. Now his, it's half hero, half hustler. I had a great grandfather who was in in this organization. It started in World War One. Um, my so my grandfather went around blowing up segregated latrines and mess halls. They got into huge brawls with racist white dudes and all this kind of stuff. But they did it for a cause. And when they got back, you know, the Deacons of Defense and Justice didn't end. So. That when black people couldn't get justice, if you if somebody was a member, they would put they they'd put out a call. And they would do retaliation raids against Klansmen, so. One of your brothers in Arkansas, something happens, you get a call. You have to be in Arkansas. Like, they're all military dudes. you got to be here at this time, full tank of gas, ready to go, because you're going to do what you do, and you're going to be on your way back to Philadelphia or wherever the fuck you come from. You know what I mean? So I I saw that and I was like, oh, that was cool as shit. My my great grandfather on my mother's side, his name was Claude Nichols, and during World War II, he served in he served in World War One, but during World War II, they paid black people in the shipping yards of Beaumont equal to white people, and that created a very violent riot where white people it's almost went. unheard of at that time. <laughs> Actually, it was more of a rate. It was 43, so it was like probably I mean, like the 30th riot that year. But so the, the equal pay definitely was unheard of. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I meant. <laughs> and so they went and killed a lot of people during that riot. But my grandfather set up a per- – he raised a militia and set up a perimeter, and nobody in within that perimeter was was harmed at all. Because they they were afraid to go to war with these capable guys when they could go to another neighborhood when nobody would fight back and they could just kill and rampage. They if they fought my grandfather and his guys, they were gonna lose. I mean, we might have lost, but they were gonna lose. Like, which one of you guys is gonna die for this cause? So <laughs> I'm know? seeing I'm seeing like a perfect storm here, right? Because yes. you have this this history that you want to live up to, right? These role models in your fan in your own family, mm-hmm. and then also and you really can't. I can't ignore like some middle child syndrome where you want to fix everything. <laughs> yes, yes. You, I think I don't know if it's a middle child thing, but empathy caused me misery in life a lot you know what i mean talking to future therapists <laughs> like caring about things yeah and it's hard to undo that because you don't want to be a person who doesn't care it's you have to undo the lingering effect yeah i think you have to recognize it's not black and white too yes you can care about things and you have to understand certain things you can't you there's nothing you could have done about it anyway and you can't let it you know i remember being a kid and there were these baby bunnies in the yard and somehow something attacked them and they died. 
And I was fucked up for like six months over That'll there do it. as a little kid. You know what Worst I mean? Worst noise you can ever hear, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know what that was until later. But I have a, even when I was at my worst, you know, I've experienced some bad things like homelessness and other things. Not Like more of that was due to me being stubborn. I, you know, I'm going to make my dream happen no matter what. So yeah. I'm paying for my studio, not for an apartment, you know, that type of thing. Well, at my worst, I always was trying to help some kind of way. Like the guy who I knew was homeless in in downtown Pontiac who I knew, man, it's getting cold, man. I got to make sure he's all right. You know what I'm saying? Or I get a call from um, Nasheed Suleiman. He's a rapper. It goes by name One Below. Really good dude. I've known him forever. (laughs) And he like he's a leader in Pontiac and he would be like yo hey there's all these kids getting ready to come down to this storefront we need to set up everything we can to teach them about media whatever the case may be there's no budget there's no nothing but these kids can't they can't see that when they go in yeah you know what I mean so it's like all right take all the stuff from the studio over there we're going to teach them about media today like that kind of stuff would happen on the regular you know what I mean But you're always prioritizing this stuff over yourself because it doesn't matter like i was taught especially if you don't have kids in a family you're the expendable part of the community you know what i mean so if it comes down to someone without kids (laughs) like but i mean but that's the reality because the community is your family the village is your family now what i learned is you have to build that village it's not everybody in a geographical yeah and i mean you got to go back to the metaphor the the oxygen mask right like Mm -hmm. how much good are you going to do if you're not (laughs) yeah yourself yeah and and that is something i had to learn i just thought you whatever because i i knew i had anger issues so i wasn't trying to get in a relationship and hurt somebody yeah god forbid hurt a woman or hurt a child or whatever because i can't control myself so i always kind of thought whatever you know what I mean? I like I'll what if it requires me to go out, you know, and it helps somebody else, and that's what it is. That's like my lot in life, whatever you know. So I cared about everything like it was the last thing. Yeah. What did that anger like? I, I wanted to ask you about anger because anger's bitch. Yes. <laughs> like uh, I was talking about this with Erica because I I get it most mostly like if I'm doing a project or something. The frustration. <laughs> so, well, mm-hmm. I mean, you do woodworking and stuff. Yeah. You get in those little things where you're like, this should fit and it doesn't fit. And like, that's where it's just like. See, that kind shit. of stuff doesn't bother me because that just is like, oh, that's a problem to solve. And problem solving to me is cool. You know, I've always been into like academic type things like yeah. that. My anger probably comes out of more insecure places. Okay. It comes from abandonment, feelings of abandonment, helplessness, self-esteem, you know. Yes, there are frustrations that mount that would manifest that to a higher level or, or more intense level. But my anger generally came out of, man, we're supposed to have this family this village doing stuff and no one cares about each other or man look at my family felt you know it's getting ready to take off law school blah 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 blah. and then all of a sudden family issues just made it you know what i mean yeah and i could 
no matter what I did, even to this day, I can't fix my family issues. And it's like, I have this expectation. You know, I started college at the age of 12. So I'm supposed to be the smart. (laughs) Yeah. So I didn't, at Clarkston, by the time, second semester of freshman year, I was dual enrolled in college because they wouldn't let me skip a grade. That's crazy. Yeah. They said they wouldn't let me skip a grade because I only had all B's or whatever. Yeah. But my mom was trying to tell, like, he, like, he never, he's not, I've never seen him open a book or open one of your books. I, I read <laughs> books from our library, which is another thing we had. Like, I thought that was normal. Everybody had, like, a library. Oh, in your house? Yeah. But I think that was, like, a trend of educated black people coming out of the 70s and stuff like yeah. that. It was like, you have a library is like a s- status thing. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I imagine uh, I never wanted that, to read like, the math book or whatever. I was like, that's dumb. My grandfather yeah. already taught me this. Like, I don't care about So I'd be reading cr- Plato's theory of knowledge or like just crazy stuff that like it was just in the library. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like that's got to be generational of like your, your culture is not going to be taught things uh, to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And so if you find yourself to be like an educated black person. I imagine you're like, all right, now I have to like, make sure that. Yeah, there is, there is a, in my culture, there is a, still a strong feeling of wanting to show others that it's possible. Yeah. There's still like, it's crazy. I grew up Wally Amos used to come into town all the time and take my family to dinner. He's love a millionaire. The, love you know the famous mean? Amos cookie reference. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> my grandfather, I didn't know at the time, but he is a millionaire. He started a bank. I didn't put two and two together. That was just the shit that happened. You know what yeah. I mean? So he started North Milwaukee State Bank. Okay. And I would always be there going to falling asleep at board meetings and stuff like that. But I had successful engineers. Like, I didn't even know how successful an engineer my grandfather was until I took computer science and engineering at Oakland University, and one of his teammates, team leaders, was the Professor Newville, was the teacher. And in the beginning, you know, this is a guy, like, one foot into retirement. He's only there, like, supplementing his golf habit or something like that. (laughs) So he's, like, he was really cool, really nice, and he's showing us all this cool stuff he's done. And every picture he put up, a picture of the team... Every time he said he did something, he's like, this is us doing Apollo propulsion. There's my grandfather. Yeah. This is us. We we invented the catalytic converter. There's my grandfather. We invented the propulsion system for intercontinental ballistic missiles. There, like, I learned all this. That's like, my crazy. grandfather wasn't a braggart. He, yeah. had a, he had a bisected catalytic converter there, and I just thought that's what they made at AC Delta. I didn't know that he actually helped invent it. Like, he's on the patent of that shit or whatever. That's wild. But, um, like, so, um, I, I knew I was blessed to see that. And yeah. I knew some of my friends didn't, I have friends that they're re- the, the successful people they looked up to were successful drug dealers. Cause that was what was around. Me. Yeah. And that's, I mean, can we talk about that for a second? And I, I like at risk of my own ignorance, like that's gotta be. So I, and I, I like to think of this as empathy, but if I picture myself as a black person in the nineties, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like raps coming up, you got like new Jack city boys in the hood and like that shit's being glamorized and 
I imagine like when you're talking about getting to college, there's a population of people that like they saw that as a goal instead of what you might have seen. Well, okay. I would, when you say the word glamorized, I think you could say it's glamorized from a position of, if you're not in that culture, but it would, those things were never told. So for me, it looked like more of exposing stories that had, I'm talking about early, like eighties, nineties, but by the time you're into the late nineties and two thousands and get all the way to Detroit filmmaking now, it's glorification. It's not, there's no substance to it, whatever the case may be. They're like, Oh, this is the hood movie. And this is what happens in the hood. And they're, they're one dimensional and that's the problem. But you think about boys in the hood that is not just like doughboy going crazy, blah 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 blah. You got Lawrence Lawrence Fishburne's character, and um, and you have Cuba Gooden Jr.'s character, and um, Angela Bassett, and they're the furthest thing from gangsters. So there was a lot of people in my community that you had to make a movie like that because everybody wasn't doughboy and Ricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, you know, there was a lot of, you know what I mean? Like in, in, when I coming up in Milwaukee, I wasn't the only affluent black child. There was the children of judges and lawyers and business owners and all that. Now my grandfather was literally the second black person to move into his suburb of Brown Deer. But that was before I was born. (laughs) You know what I mean? There was a healthy movement of success where... I didn't have to look up to a drug dealer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, there's people in my own family that didn't get that luxury yeah. because of geography. Well, I guess I'm So, ge- when, I, when I saw that, it was, it didn't become glorification until later, until the stories were tired. Yeah. And, you know, there was a need, there's a need to tell, if, because if, if the evening news is just telling you, in the, it's just savagery in the urban yeah. area. They're just killing each other. It's nothing but, it's crazy. Like in the eighties, they're telling you this. Meanwhile, Ronald Reagan was the one giving us the drugs. Yeah. But um, <laughs> and they teach you this one-sided story, not understanding that the majority of drug consumption happens in in this country from white people, and a lot of the purchasers in the in the hood are white people co- be, coming to get drugs. You have to have money to do drugs. Yeah. You know what I mean? So by proxy, there's a lot more expendable money. I know way more white people who smoke crack than I do black. And that seems crazy. Then I talk to white people and they're like, oh, yeah, I just smoke a little crack. It was the greatest. Like, and I'm like, no, it doesn't. It ruins life. Look, I know look more white people life. smoke crack, but I just, I think I just know more white people. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, that they make, they make stigma. Crack is cocaine. Yeah. White people love some cocaine. Like, it's, <laughs> and it, that's not to say I'm not even trying to like harp on people. But no, no, no. It's the stigmas that really came out of there that they were even trying to fight. Like, there's a coolness factor that we always have to keep up. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you couldn't have Wesley Snipes in New Jack City being this conflicted, super uber conflicted character that. You know, a good bad guy is a guy that you don't know he, 
all you know he's confident he's got good <laughs> he's got good tendencies in him like no a good character in a film is not 1980s this guy's bad this guy's good or yeah, like yeah. the rifleman it's like superman movies suck and superman comics can suck a lot because he's just this unflawed good guy yeah. never has any issues to deal with and I it's not would, a relatable character. Yes, and that's the problem with glorifying gangster movies. Is yeah, and I, I guess I got just I, trying to make the coolest guy ever, the meanest guy ever, the whatever. Instead of showing like this guy loves his mama, he really didn't want us. When you hear people's real stories who go through that, they didn't want to yeah. sell drugs. Nobody's yeah. like, man, I could have been a CPA, but man, this crack is <laughs> this yeah. crack game is so lucrative. But the the reason I bring that up and like the actual point I was trying to get to. Uh, which I suppose could have been a much straightforward mm-hmm. question, but I'm just wondering, given your background and your education and, and the, like what you've told me so far about your grandparents and everything, was there like a form of internalized racism that was just this other level when you got to like the fraternity and you're, and you're seeing some of that shit? I wouldn't say internalized racism. I've always had problems with cultural monoliths. That's the okay. biggest lie, right? What so, do you mean by cultural monolith? Cultural monolith is that a white guy is supposed to be like this and a black guy is supposed to okay, be like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. doesn't matter. And if, you, if you're not within this box, you're not white. But you can black. find that across. Like I had people who, because I speak proper English, tell me before that I wasn't black. And, I, and I've gotten, I've put in people in the hospital when I was more violent yeah. in college days. I put people in the hospital for trying to test my blackness. That was a real. My brother's got. Which I mean, isn't that, that the definition of internalized racism? Though? Yes. Yeah, but I don't know if it's race. I guess it is. Because, like for a black person, tell another black person you're not black enough. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I it's probably like I think I think you could just justify it as kind of like racism, but the problem with that is, I think there should be a different word to describe it because race is a contrived thing. Yeah. It's contrived by certain people. And there was never a point where we said, all right, we're all going along with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, you know, I can't boil it down straight to racism. There's ignorance we have about our own selves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I from mean, from my perspective, from other people's perspectives, there's, there's ignorance that we have. Like... I always struggle with, can a black person be racist? Now, we can be, we can be prejudiced, we can be hateful, prejudiced, we can be bigoted, because bigoted isn't just race, you know what I mean? But can we be racist, and we had nothing to do with... Creating race. Yeah, it's not our system. Yeah, I mean, my, my only... And if so, if so, whose fault is us being racist? You know what I mean? Now, I'm not, I'm not one to shuck personal responsibility. You said the words, then, you know, that's still on you. But how did we get to, you know what I mean? Because these things are not. It's a bigger question. That's not an African (laughs) thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? But then you have all these other poisons from racism that came in. So we have colorism. We have colorism where. A light-skinned African-American who could pass as white will often have negative views for a darker-skinned person. 
because for survival dictated that they shut their, you know. Yeah. And you also had people who could pass that were like, screw that, I'm blacker than a thousand midnights and I'm going to fight for my people. Yeah. So, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's, we, everyone wants to live in a black and white and it's, it's a gray, it's all gray area. And you don't ever want to be part of the bad guys. You know what I mean? But, the, the, but there's only bad guys in black and white. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yep. if you live in that gray area and that's, I mean, across the board and in any topic, if you're 100% in any direction, it's not a great thing. No, because if you're a hundred percent in one direction, you're probably wrong about a lot of stuff. Yeah. But now we're fighting in a time where, where, Black churches are being shot up and synagogues are being shot up. Now black people and Jewish people are fighting because Kanye. Of, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It's and even Kanye West. Why is Kanye West so prolific? <laughs> yes, he's not a musical genius. He yeah. can't play one instrument. You know what I mean? He's not a good rapper. He has an army of ghostwriters. Yeah. And the fashion stuff, I get it. And I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, like yeah. people, somebody shot Versace because of, fanat like fashion has like crazy <laughs> fanaticism. I witnessed this with my brother and it was something that kind of drove a wedge between us. Not that my brother was like getting a big head about it, but there was people who were solely around my brother because he was like the guy who was going to have the new shoe coming out, the dopest clothes, blah, 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 blah. And they weren't front. They didn't try to get to know my brother or whatever. Yeah. They were like, I know him. He's my guy. He's the shoe. Guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that kind of stuff, those people, if I said something critical of anything, those types of people would screenshot half of what I said and take it to my brother and be like, look at your brother he's saying this. So once I said, I said, these fashion guys need to stop coloring on shoes and make their own shoe. And I said, there's one person who's capable of being able to bring an actual new shoe in, in the Southeast Michigan area. Yeah. And I was alluding to it being my brother. Somebody copied half of that message and, and showed my brother, these guys need to stop coloring on shoes. My brother was like, I'm a designer. That's what I do. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look at the whole message. You know what I mean? But the fact of the matter is somebody did that because in their, they, if they told my brother half the story, he believed it. That gave them favor in my brother. Like, oh, I just told you, you know, you got snakes behind your back. And like, they were the snake. How, how do you and your brother get along growing up? Best friends. Like when we're did... 13 months apart. So we were kind of like twins. Oh, okay. I didn't know you're that close. Yeah. It's blowing up. But also when you're the older brother but you're a lot smaller you know what i mean like it's different if i get angry yeah and i've learned i learned this early on in life if i get angry somebody could get hurt which is why growing up people were always allowed to yell at me in arguments and if i raise my voice every adult in the tri-state area was like, whoa 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 Calm down, buddy. We don't want this getting out of control. And it's like, you just let this four foot eight dude just tee off on me for two hours yeah. and I raise my voice once. And it's because the four foot eight dude, no one gave a shit about your psychological, well, you know, yeah, state yeah. of being. You're big. You can take it. He's little. You know what I mean? 
the little older brother. I don't know what that's like, even though well, I'm taller. Well, but I, that wouldn't happen between <laughs> me and my brother. That would happen between me and classmates. I wasn't allowed to. I gotcha. A kid could raise his voice and go full-on emotional temper tantrum on me. But if you did. And even if they saw me retaliating, they damn near tackle me. Yeah. Because if I got half as upset as this kid, they let tee off on me, it could be over for that kid. And that causes a whole bunch of built-up stuff in you. Like, for your... you, That was when I learned I was a monster as a kid. You know what I mean? Like, was that, a, like, a lack of control as far as like once you get started nobody ever had any evidence of me like there was never the fight there was never like oh the last time you did it was we don't want to see i gotcha you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah it was we we can't let this happen but nobody ever thought to take care of the, you know like to hey don't let me get treated like a punching bag yeah you know it was always, you're big, you can take it. It was always, well, yeah, he's a little guy. Well, it's like, okay. Uh, nature's law says that little guy can't raise his voice to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, you see, like, puppy dogs where there's little dogs barking at it like a dog that's like 180 pounds heavier than it. That would not happen in nature. Well, yeah, and your so your and your feelings and emotions are being neglected. Yeah, like I don't get emotions because I'm bigger, more capable. But these people don't such have a, such boundaries. a fucking man thing to like <laughs> apply to somebody. Like, but that's the it, and if you're ugh. a big man, you get even more man. Like you're supposed to be even more of a man. Yeah. You don't yeah. cry. You don't so when somebody funny. says something fucked up to you. It doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you don't, you don't have an emotional opinion. You don't, you know what I mean? You're just big, and those guys aren't as blessed as you to be big. So you got to take it on. It's like that's fucked up. No, man. <laughs> like why should I have to take it? And why do you think it has to get to a point of punching somebody or something like that, or me throwing somebody around? Yeah. Because I got upset, but then in real life, I, I so I always had control. Even in my most angry. Control's a that's a that's a touchy touchy word that plays. Well a role when I in say control, I've always had control on what was gonna happen to you. Yeah, the like other if person. you're going off, you know when yeah. to, I yeah. I've never I've never blacked out and <laughs> woke up with bloody knuckles. The, I've I've blacked out when there was more than one against me yeah. and I survived fine. I've never blacked out because I was mad at one person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And just, oh, spread the, you know what I mean? Now, right. well, I got into a fight in on spring break, and it was because of way too much alcohol and dudes just whatever. Dudes spring break dudes. senior year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I punched a guy who bleed who bled easy, but I don't really count that as a... I you know, punched a guy who bled easy. Some people just like their nose. If you punch them in the nose, they oh, okay. just are more... Yeah. You know what I mean? I got so you. the room looked like a murder scene and there was only like three punch. It wasn't like... Gotcha. It was like he hit me He hit me first, then I hit him like two or three times and that was it. But because he bled easy, there was like blood all over the sheets or whatever. And But, you know, 
we even that was crazy because that we were fine that night. That just shows you like dumb teenage boys. Me and him yeah. were fine that night, and I only hit him because he hit me. And because in my life, little guys who never get checked would lose sight of reality. And then when you cross that line, then it's like, all right, we're hitting each other now. You know what I mean? And that's not an even thing. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? My swing is not the same as yours. And, but that's all stuff that's embarrassing to me. Like I, I never wanted to be intimidating. Yeah. I hate that. I would have shit posture because I didn't want to seem bigger than people. Yeah. I can relate to that. You know what I mean? I'd be like hunched over sitting down. Like I didn't want to lord over people. Yeah. Did you, uh, are you ever, how, how tall are you? 6'3". Yeah, okay, 6'3", too. Nice. <laughs> um, well, it's, so it's always funny to me, right? Because I, I always hated myself, had shitty self-esteem, and I never thought of myself as, like, big. Like, we would go, if we did, like, a bar crawl in Detroit, I'd be, like, it'd be a group of us. I'm the tallest, probably, like, way the most. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm, like, someone's going to fuck with me. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always worried about that. And yeah, it like wasn't until I, I really was a little bit that way until you go around certain places, especially like in the African American community, and dudes who are older than you are calling you big bro, or you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like big fan, like you know, like they're just yeah. calling you like, and it's nothing, it's innocuous. Call them like they see them, yeah. but I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't think of myself as yeah. that until, you know. And you don't, like, present that way. Because in my so mind, it's... I'm the same size as my brother. Yeah. Coming up. Because yeah. we were, like, hand, you know. I guess I was a little, I knew I was a little bit bigger because whenever we were real little and needed to reach something on a shelf or something like that, I <laughs> was the always one the, it. <laughs> I was, no, I was always the base. Oh, okay. I got I and my brother stood on my back. <laughs> like, I was always the the uh, booster chair or whatever. That's funny. Um, but. I didn't think of myself in that manner. I never really, as a kid, I never wanted to fight. One time my grandfather had to make, me and my cousin were like at each other's throats or something. And my grandfather got tired of it and made us go fight. And I didn't want to fight. So he was hitting me, blah, 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 blah. My grandfather was like, he's going to bloody you if you don't do anything. So, and but he was, my grandfather's there. It wasn't no, really, it was like little I don't kids. Mean it like that. It's just but crazy I, to think I about. slammed my cousin. And ran into the house crying because I did something that I didn't agree with. I thought that was bad and wrong and yeah. whatever. And, you know, I never really, until I was 19, I never was a guy that wanted to harm anyone. I guess on the football field, but that was like, oh, here's my That was your excuse. outlet. Yeah. yeah. Can we shift conversation to mm-hmm. something? We, yeah. You've been sure, holding sure. this guitar this, and all mm-hmm. <laughs> this entire time. Um where where does that enter your life? You said you started playing at three. So my my mother always had a piano and a guitar in the house, an acoustic guitar in the okay. house. And I would Did always... Your parents play? No. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes, no. My mom could play a few songs. She hasn't done anything in decades. Yeah. My dad played drums in the church. I had an uncle who was kind of musically inclined, but he never did anything with it. I had a... Um, like my dad's first cousins are amazing vocally. Um, my cousin Lynn passed away, but she was probably the greatest singer I ever heard. And like, she was like Aretha Franklin meets Mahalia Jackson meets like every time there was a funeral, she was the one who made everybody feel better because she would sing his eyes on the sparrow or something. And she would just, and she was one of those people. She didn't sing 
she wasn't trying she could have been famous and she wasn't trying to do none of that she's saying for the lord or, you know what i mean she's yeah. saying to uplift people and all this kind of stuff so and you're just putzing around when you're so kid? i would putz around and then my in 80 in 83 84 my mom put me in um suzuki method okay what is like this, this thing in the 80s where they were trying to get kids to be accelerated learners in music so i was playing piano and all that kind of stuff but milwaukee just had a way better they had way better music in the education and system so third grade you could take guitar lessons oh wow fourth grade you could join the orchestra (laughs) fifth grade you could join the band so that's basically what i did was like played music because you could and so where when does your like when do you decide i'm outside of education and stuff like you want to play in a band or you want to like play bass and (laughs) first time i ever had a jam session was middle school in milwaukee and i thought that was the coolest shit a person could ever do (laughs) um it was just people you went to school with yeah we were just all little kids we all grew up together and whatever happened we just like started playing like a dr dre song in middle school and it was like oh man yeah and, and i think we played a dr dre song and an outcast song something it was like and it just blew all of our minds and we were like oh man this is it and then i came to michigan the band fucking sucked like <laughs> It was horrible. Like I got first chair trumpet, like not even I like in a day. And it You're playing trumpet too? Yeah, I got a flugel that I mess with now. Flugel. Yeah, but um, <laughs> it wasn't, and it wasn't hard. It was like just Americana shit music. Yeah, like yeah. oh my god, it was. So yeah. I quit that immediately, but I just kept playing bass guitar myself, and then. Do you find your crowd in that? Like, like I'm thinking of the people you've put. Like, Found I know friends in that. So, yeah. I thought I was basically done with music, and then Brian Travaskis, yeah, somebody, one of the first people I met coming here, he was like, "Dude, we got a jam," and he told me about it, like my Disney World, which is Motor City Guitar. <laughs> like I knew nothing about it. He Marty, like, you gotta go check that place yeah. out. Marty is amazing, <laughs> and that kind of turned me on there. So in high school, I. Until senior year, there was only a handful of people that knew I played yeah. an instrument. Until after football, and I decided I was done with football forever. Music was something I hid. Yeah. Because remember, everyone else came up on different genres than me. So Clarkson was great in that I got to get a rock and roll education that I probably wouldn't have gotten. You know, I learned everything about punk rock from i'd say you sean tracy tim robinson rob chisholm um nick waters i appreciate you putting me in that group but i do not belong in that group. but i didn't know <laughs> but anything. yeah all those guys and you guys would just listen to your music and then i'd ask questions i didn't know and then i was able to get an education from friends yeah and it's a rock and roll education you can't even get in school. Yeah. You know, it was so authentic. and But learning, I would learn about these things that weren't really exposed because to me because of my culture. And it, it opened me up and it made it so I could make a living in my college years. 
because I was the most versatile bass player ever. I could play every in every band from gospel to alternative to yeah. punk to ska to whatever. And it was just like, whatever. Who's paying, Everyone I'll needs a bass it. player, and if yeah. you can play it, for and sure. Not only do you need a bass player, you need a good bass player. <laughs> you can overcome having a bad lead and a bad, uh, you know, an okay rhythm section. Yeah. But you need that backbone, maybe. Bass and drums is, yeah. is the cornerstone of a good. But having that hidden secret, though, I guess that was awesome because it was a part of me that I didn't have to... Everything else seemed like everyone had access to and could manipulate or use for their benefit. Blah blah blah. Did blah. you write, or were you just playing other shit? Uh, I mean, I wrote music. I didn't really write lyrics. Okay. I didn't start writing lyrics until. So I wrote lyrics. I was an engineer, and I got mad at hip hop dudes because rappers. All they do is rap in some instances. And I was like, man, I'm playing these instruments, making these beats. I had to freaking rewire the radio station so we could have our first recording spot. Like, yeah. all this other stuff. And rappers would come like, yeah, you know, thanks for doing your little bit of work, buddy. <laughs> like, and I was, so I would be like, all right, I could kill this guy rapping. Because I would also be the engineer to be like, don't say it like that. That doesn't sound good. Say it like this. Yeah. And Produce. I realized I could, I realized I could spit. And then. It was the whole early 2000s thing of trying to be the coldest guy who never wrote anything down. And, you know, everybody wanted to be rap like Jay-Z, so never yeah. write anything down. But high, highly elevated lyricism. You were always trying to double entendre and rough, blah, blah, man. blah, blah. That's... And, but that was something that I didn't, I didn't even consider being, I never really considered myself doing frontman work. Yeah, and now I even sing, which is something that I kind of learned over the pandemic. Caught a little bit of that earlier, and I wouldn't say I'm the greatest, but I'm enough to where I can sing songs for myself and feel good. You know, yeah, that seems like a good spot to ask this question. You're holding a guitar you made. You speak passionately about music in a way that I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about it. Why do you not play for ten years? What What's the catalyst that starts that? For and me, how does it playing, keep going? playing starts with a feeling and if you don't have it you don't do it just lost that feeling and it it became it became a job i need you to do this I need yeah. you to do this baseline oh man come do this blah 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 and then this isn't even a negative thing there's people that are just getting opportunities and all that and the band that i had was no longer there yeah. And it was like, man, dude, that was the greatest band of all time. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to find new guys. I don't yeah. want to. And then it was like I had the studio, and it was more focusing on making beats, rapping, making movies, you know, doing that kind of thing, photos and graphic design. So it was there was always a guitar there, and people always knew that I could play. And I don't want to say I didn't touch it for 10 years. Yeah. I'd have the, you know, I'd have my sit down, play for a couple hours and then put it down and wouldn't, uh, a couple hours wouldn't come for another two more years or something like that. Yeah. So when I say I didn't play it, I went from 16 hours a day playing to not, to only touching my guitar one or two times a year. Yeah. You know. Essentially not playing. <laughs> yeah. And then now it's back to, I feel 
like I missed something if I didn't play my guitar. Today. Do you know, are you able to identify what reignited that? Embarrassment of not touching my guitar. So I have a lot to say about that, but I'll let you continue. <laughs> it's like, dude, you spend all this money on this stuff and you're just watching it collect us. And um, seeing not good musicians get a lot of <laughs> accolades and fame. Yeah. Um, seeing people that I used to teach become super fluent and very good. And it's like, dude, since you were their teacher, you regressed. You didn't get better, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And also, I made a decision that I didn't want to be depressed anymore. And I knew that a physical tool to help me not be depressed is practicing, yeah. which is crazy because I, I never perform now. I just practice. I, and I think that'll change this year because, I mean, people got to see the guitar some kind of way. And like that's that's a whole other thing right like as someone that so i have to talk about this because there's like i mentioned earlier i really didn't like myself for a long time blah mm -hmm. blah blah uh the things that i get the most pride out of like it's not writing songs or uh the podcast proud of very proud of the podcast but like when i build something there's just a certain level. I don't know if it's because it's tangible mm -hmm. and you can like look at it, mm -hmm. but like to build. So combining those things, then you're you built a fucking guitar. <laughs> yeah, like just just to get to this point, there was a lot of overcoming of my own self. Yeah, you have to overcome the that voice that tells you you dude. How why are you building guitars? You don't build guitars. That's for somebody else. You have to overcome that. Yeah. Then you have to overcome. You're not Dude, a woodworker. You're not even a guitar player. <laughs> Everybody else is better at guitar than you. What are you doing? Yeah. Overcoming the woodworking thing, I think I just have audacity to not care about that kind of stuff. Like, I'll try That would anything. be my biggest thing. I'd be like, yeah, I don't care about the guitar. You guys play it, but I built it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but my, and I'm, I'm very proud of that, and I'm very proud that I was able to come up with a design that nobody else... Yeah. Like, this rectangle somebody else has, but the modular, my modular system... There's not other people with that. You well, know? just the woodworking. I mean, I... The fact that I was able to even do this, this comes from me, from guitars and yeah. basses that, that I used to like to inlay, buy. Like, I'm going to take a picture for you, Lee. But yeah. that, like, inlay on the bottom, because otherwise everyone listens, yeah. like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but, like, that, I didn't even notice that until just now, and that's, that's fucking nuts. And do you know the reason why I love woodworking is because you don't become a good woodworker by not making mistakes. Oh, yeah. You become a good woodworker by learning how to deal with your mistakes. So this is somebody I had let someone else put the string ferrules, this, this back, these back parts in, and they weren't lined up. It was all kinds of issues with it. So I was like, man, I got to do something about that. That can't stand. You know what yeah, I mean? Awesome. So this was all um, zebra wood and Bacote at the, at, at, before. So I ended up um, just hollowing out this inlay, and it originally was just going to be this purple heart, then this. But I fucked up. <laughs> like, <laughs> the router took a little chunk, so I was like, yeah. "All right, you got to be able to fill that, fix that." So I ended up taking this piece of of winge or wingay. I don't know how you say it properly, and then it just 
took on this whole thing and it's like Absolutely. you would think that that's how i started that's how i wanted it to be and it really it was i i, I just it looks awesome because that contrast with the purple heart and mm -hmm. like and then just i mean i know and then it ties it back into the front with this purple heart yeah you know what i mean it's awesome and but to me that's the absolute beauty of woodworking is you're not trying to become perfect you're trying to deal with your mistakes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Trying to hide your mistakes. <laughs> and hide whatever, you know. Really nicely, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even this, <laughs> this guitar was ruined by the CNC machine, and I learned how to do epoxy to fill that corner oh, in. Nice. And But this is also why it's my guitar, not, the, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. not a one for sale. Um, I feel like talking about music, we're going full circle, and eventually I'm going to have to edit yeah. this, so... I mean, <laughs> is there anything uh before we jump back into this that you want to that we didn't touch on i mean there's a billion other questions i want to well, ask there, you but yeah there's I, a, we can't I have mean, a six hour podcast <laughs> what's crazy is i'm blessed to have lived probably a thousand lives i've been worked in politics i've worked in healthcare. i've grown cannabis i've had food-based businesses been a teacher all this kind of stuff my biggest thing I could say to people is you're never there, so stop trying to get there. Life is a journey. You never get to the destination. And once you can enjoy the journey, you're really living. Yeah. If you are if you fall into an illusion of that you're there, you're blah 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 what you're doing is waiting for a ton of bricks to hit you. Well, on that note, we can call it if you want to. I'll be back if you want to talk more. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, just from the <laughs> length alone. We've been sitting here for three hours. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah, I got to pee again. That's how long we've been sitting here. <laughs> Do a little a little jam before we go. I just got these chords together. All right, I wrote them down there, <laughs> but I'm gonna throw a capo on it. just listened to my interview with Jeremy Williams. I had so much fun just hanging out and jamming and the whole time, you know, in the back of my head, I'm thinking you got to edit this later. And <laughs> that was a challenge. Um, and I'll tell you, Jeremy, if you're listening to this, you have a lot of knowledge in that noggin 
but man, you are a master of deflection. I was listening to this, I was editing it, and I, I ask you a question, and then all of a sudden we're talking about the the roots of music, and <laughs> it's like, wait a second, I asked you about your brother. Um, so I'm I'm thankful for for all the storytelling and what I mean. That's it, right? Jeremy is a storyteller. He's got so much knowledge crammed in there, and and is able to connect all these all these different thoughts and events and all this stuff. I'm excited for you guys to hear the bonus episode later this week. So stick around for that. If you're not already subscribed, subscribe to the show, leave us a review, go ahead and pop up five stars there on Apple podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Cause those reviews help people find the show easier. And if you want to help out the show, any additional monetary means, please head over to patreon.com slash friend request pod and you can support the show. It's just uh, a little over a dollar a month that goes right to the show. And as Jeremy mentioned, you know, he's got a lot going on. He designed his own guitar, the Patterson Greenfield. You can follow them on Instagram. Uh, just really cool shit happening. And you can follow him on Instagram and Facebook and see all the stuff that he's doing with, uh, with the guitar, him and a buddy of mine, Kent, are working on dog treats together. A lot happening. So follow along, follow the show, follow the guest. And I mean, if you have some space in your life, follow me too. All right. I will talk to you guys later, later this week, technically. Right. All right. Goodbye.